Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right, Alex. How are you? I'm fine. I think we're, let's be honest, both a bit buoyed by a lovely letter that we've had. Yes, very much so. A really lovely letter from a librarian, terrific to begin with, in Indianapolis. It's wonderful to hear from you from all around the world. And um, she says very nice things about us first. Well, this is we, what we really mean. As, as usual, it? we will skim over modestly. <laughs> but actually, Alex, I'm not sure that you're going to like this bit too much. She enjoys hearing about how much I enjoy reading Terry Pratchett. So, you know, that's something that we've got in common. Lucy. There. Yes. Did you write this letter? I did not write this letter. I don't have the imagination. It's, and it's very nicely phrased and written. No, I didn't. It's a genuine, lovely listener from Indianapolis. And she's writing because she said, because when we were talking about Good Omens, uh, when we were talking about series two and I mentioned Cabin Pressure, she said it's one of her favourite shows. And she says it's one which my husband and I listened to twice as we were trekking through the States from Indiana to California. Now, I'm very, very bad at geography, but that seems like a long way, isn't it? That seems like a long long way. way. Yeah, I mean, I'm bad in the sense that I could not give you an accurate mileage, but I'm good enough to know it's a very long way. Yeah. So isn't that wonderful? And she's made a suggestion of uh, someone else I might like, Christopher Moore. And I haven't read any of his stuff. Um, One of them, which is called Fool, a different take on King Lear and a dirty job in which the angel of death lives in San Francisco. Doesn't that just sound brilliant? Well, this is, I mean, we're always giving you reading tasks to do, aren't we? And now we're going to give you another one. I'm delighted to have this reading task and I shall I shall take it seriously. Believe you me, I will report back. Thank you so much, our lovely librarian yeah. from Indianapolis. We genuinely, enormously appreciate letters. We'll even accept letters that aren't glowing with praise for us although you know <laughs> no, we obviously. do like this best we like this best but we love to hear from you and actually we should tell you we never tell you what address to write to you can write to letters at the hyphen tls.co.uk it's you know if you'd like to give us a shout from wherever you are tell us what you're reading and uh, you know give us give us more to read we'd better immodestly go on don't you think? <laughs> yeah, yes, we better had continue better with get, our, on, yep. get on with it, really. Thank you very much, and please do write to us. On this week's show, Jonathan Barnes joins us to celebrate 70 years of Quatermass, and we talk to Penelope Lively and her daughter Josephine about their love of gardens and literature. But first, 
70 years ago, the newfangled medium of TV cemented its grip on the viewing public. To quote a line from our piece this week, all those who had bought a television set for the primary purpose of witnessing the coronation months before were gripped, or so the legend runs, for six weeks by this cliffhanging serial. And who was everyone gripped by? By Professor Bernard Quatermass, of course, the creation of the dramatist Nigel Neal. Now, J.S. Barnes has written us a splendid piece about the professor and his progenitor, and he joins us now to talk about it. Jonathan, many thanks for joining us. Not at all. Thanks for inviting me. So tell us what the people in 1953, what they experienced when the Quatermass experiment, that was the first one, wasn't it, when it when it came out? Was it a sensation? Absolutely it was, yes. I mean, it seems difficult to know now, isn't it, at this sort of distance in a in a way. But yes, you know, that's the story that everyone was gathered around once a week to, um, yeah, to watch this you know, serialised drama. And yeah, the whole nation was hooked by it, you know. I mean, we're obviously in a time before, you know, lots of streaming services and, and multiple other options, you know. It was the only thing to watch, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, serialising is, isn't new, is it? But it was the telly that was new. So what was it? What was the story that they were, what was it that they were also so gripped by, hooked on? Yes, well, the, the Quatermass experiment written by Nigel Neal, as you said in your introduction, you know, not the first serialised television drama, but certainly the one that seems to have, you know, gripped the popular imagination. And, you know, as I will go on and explain, it, it's a story that still works really works i think the architecture of the story really works 70 years on it is a science fiction story neil would have hated that he was always very very down on the on the genre but it is a story about british rocket group you know a fictional group of kind of pioneers and inventors led by quatermass who send a ship into space with three crewmen and the ship comes back with only one crewman and he has been grievously changed. He's not what he was. He is not what he was. He is more than he was, but also less. And there's a big showdown, is there, in Westminster Abbey? Was it filmed in Westminster Abbey? No, no, I don't, I don't no. think it was. There is, a, yeah, there is a famous, famous showdown at the end in, in Westminster Abbey, which we were reminded um, at the event that I'll talk about in a minute. You know, was so fresh in the minds of the of the audience, having seen. The coronation there months before. So there's something already quite, quite mischievous in a way about setting this climax with the professor and a sort of unearthly creature, a beast in that particular location. Mm. So people felt like this seat of this great sort of pomp and ceremony of British life that they've just kind of watched reverently is now part of this whole new idea of a sort of not alien invasion but a kind of alien contamination absolutely yeah and there's something there is something very subversive in it i think i mean it's easy to look back now perhaps and you know it is men is middle-aged men in in suits standing around doing a lot of talking not exclusively but you know that is perhaps how it appears but there is a really sort of subversive element to it it's at once a kind of you know it feels like a on the surface perhaps a sort of celebration of of sort of Britishness and you know the pioneering spirit but there's also this real anxiety which which underpins it and there's a quite extraordinary moment towards the end where slightly probably Quatermass ends up doing a, a television broadcast to the entire world we are told but he apologizes he apologizes to the whole world you know this 
sort of besuited Englishman. Very, very striking moment. Mm. And so tell us about the professor, because he's a very strong character, isn't he? What you said, he's kind of in a line of there is a line of sort of English characters like that. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think I say in the piece, you know, he's absolutely in the lineage of, of Sherlock Holmes. He prefigures Doctor Who, which again, I think Neil would have would have detested. And in fact, he did. Um, but, you know, the kind of Wellesian quality as well. There's those sort of, you know, the pioneers in those stories, you know, the Invisible Man, Professor Cavill, you know, from the First Men in the Moon and so on. He's absolutely in that in that lineage, but it's more serious, perhaps, in some ways, a kind of graver figure. But in the sense that he's so he's a figure of authority, he's a professor, and he he sort of knows everything and strides around telling people what to do. That is it that kind of idea? Yes, there is a kind of paternalistic quality to him. But you know, this is the first serial we're talking about. Neil wrote several more. You know, by the end of this, a lot of that authority, a lot of that, I guess, very British certainty has really started to fray at the at the edges. You know, it's very much of its time inevitably um so it's very buttoned down but you know underneath that you can see yes this sort of seething seething anxiety how much was it to do with the sort of post-war tension the idea of threats that have to be kept at bay somehow that is sort of somehow transmuted onto the idea of outer space it's got to be hasn't it it's got Mm. to be in answer to that and um yeah you know neil absolutely of his time, fascinated by new technology and by advances of all of all kinds, but also yes, you know, it's it's the what is the place of Britain of England in the world after World War Two? It takes place, you know, when it's very striking when the spaceship crash lands again. You know, almost all the characters, in particular the working class characters that Neil was always very careful to include in his stories, all say it's like the Blitz. It's like the Blitz. I mean, this is something in very recent raw memory it's a kind of ruined bombed out London anyway but yes you're also asking that question you know where does where does Britain go from here Mm. and you say that as a character I mean a bit like Sherlock Holmes did Conan Doyle he kind of dogged his footsteps a bit didn't he that before that his work was a bit more kind of in inverted commas proper theatre and as you said he wasn't a fan of science fiction anyway no and he's absolutely (laughs) You know, uh, you know, some years after his death now, you know, he's beloved by that community. Mm. British science fiction would look very, very different without him. If I don't know. I mean, it, it feels a, a shame in a way that he couldn't perhaps embrace that a little bit more. Because, as I say, you know, the, the stories hold up in incredibly well, you know, all of the Quatermass, all of the Quatermass scripts. And so tell us about this extraordinary sounding event, at Alexandra Palace, this one off event that you went to. Yeah, it was quite a remarkable, quite a remarkable evening. As you said, yeah, 70 years since the Quatermass experiment was broadcast. The first two episodes we have recorded, quite a tough watch, I think, now, you know, seem very kind of fuzzy and distant. And the rest of them were never recorded and are just lost as as kind of signals. Um, so it's always been one that's hard to kind of imagine. Even a few years later, Quatermass in the Pit, which I think is probably the, the strongest Quatermass story, exists in its entirety. You can watch it on Blu-ray in a sort of handsomely restored version, and it, you know, it holds up kind of much better. But the, the experiment is kind of you know mostly lost. So there was this kind of, yeah, rather remarkable tribute, a decision for one night only 
in Alexandra Palace to perform all six episodes and including the stage directions as well. It was a very long evening. It was one of the hottest <laughs> nights of the year. Yes, you said that, yes. It sounds like it's like much more than going to see a Wagner opera, isn't it? It was like it was a, it was a big old thing. It felt like a couple of operas. Yeah. You're all sitting there for hours, sweltering. <laughs> and I can only assume that these are absolute kind of die-hard fans. I think most of us were. Yes, I think <laughs> most of us were there. To be fair, both in the audience and on the stage as well, because playing Quatermass in this in this version was the writer and actor Mark Gatiss, you know, who is one of the the great living Neil fans and Neil experts as well, and that the, the cast was was full of kind of kindred spirits in that regard. It, it was a reading. They sort of stood around and read it. So it wasn't it wasn't acted out as such. It was a rehearsed. It was a rehearsed reading. Yeah, with a little bit a little bit extra. Lights, smoke, original music from the 1953 production, mm. original sound effects from that production as well. An enormous cast, 21 actors, I think, you know, all of whom approached the material slightly, slightly differently. But, you know, there was the actor that played Victor Caroon, who is the, the astronaut that comes back from space, actor called James Swanton, really went above and beyond um, the demands of the evening, particularly given the, the, the temperature and gave an extraordinary physical performance as well, um, kind of writhing mm. in horror. Yeah, it doesn't sound like yeah. he was just doing a reading. It sounds like it was a sort of full embodiment of this scientist who this terrible thing has befallen. He was giving 110%, I think it's fair to say. Mm -hmm. yes. Well, actually, you can see it in the, um, in the picture. So the picture that goes with your piece, you know, in the paper on the website, you can see him, he's kind of writhing and twisted and his shadow is on the back. It looks almost like Nosferatu. It's that very dramatic, very spooky. Was it, was it spooky and scary? It was. And it was, yeah, it was interesting because, you know, clearly there were some, some lines that have, have dated, um, you know, none of which were removed clearly there's some humor in, in doing it that way there were you know there was the odd stumble the odd sort of misstep they'd only had a day's rehearsal to get this right and you know they'd underestimated the running time we were there till quarter to midnight I think um, oh really well how long did they the think end. it was going to be I think they said originally it was going to be two hours 50 minutes including an interval <laughs> it um, wasn't was it? <laughs> <laughs> it it wasn't but you know as it went on it sort of built and built and built in in power and actually some of the sort of surface bits of humour went away. And yeah, particularly the last episode, really, really striking. And, you know, marks him out as a as a great writer, I think, in lots of ways. Yes, for that to stand up, actually, because that is just, I mean, of course, it's the actors as well, but for it to stand up with people just reading it out, it must stand up very well. There's a remaking of another one of his plays, isn't there, on, on BBC Sounds that people can listen to? No, no Quatermass this time, but another amazing cast. He has this... There's a lot of kind of very starry fans, doesn't he? Absolutely, yes. I mean, it's, it's you know, I think one of the things that's so interesting, look back on uh, writers of that, particularly that generation, is the choice of medium. And I do think, you know, my goodness, Nigel Neal's son, of course, Matthew Neal, you know, very well-known literary novelist. Oh, that's his son? It is, yeah. Okay. yeah. But he has an even more famous wife. Yes. Lucy. Do you know who Nigel Neal's wife was? No, I don't. Who's his wife? None other than Judith Kerr. No! Yes, <gasps> the tiger who came to tea. What an amazing family. What a family. Yes. Wow. 
Oh, gosh, that's a stone-cold classic. I know Judith Kerr's work better than any of the other two, I have to say. Well, actually, perhaps, you know, not coincidentally. I mean, Matthew Neal's best-known novel, I guess, is English Passengers, which won the Whitbread Prize, which shortlisted for the Booker Prize. But it was, it had a kind of scientific adventuring sort of overtone. The English passengers of the title were going off to Tasmania, I think, you know, in order to conduct religious scientific sorts of experiments so evidently there was this great imagination in that family goodness knows what their tea times were like (laughs) depends if there was any food left from the tiger (laughs) sorry jonathan (laughs) (laughs) sorry i digressed jonathan i digress it's absolutely fascinating what a family but yes sorry tell us about this other play without quatermass Oh, yes. So this is the play, You Must Listen. Um, Yeah, no, what I was saying was about the choice of medium is that, yeah, had he chosen stage play? Interesting, I think that, you know, he adapted John Osborne's two most famous plays for the screen, or had he chosen prose fiction? It would be easier, I think, to sort of get a handle on it. But so much of that early stuff is lost, you know, and obviously, you know, there were issues around archive television sort of dating in certain ways. This was a radio play written and produced the year before the Quatermass experiment. So he's just sort of on the cusp of that huge success. Radio play, which BBC produced, didn't keep any recordings of. And I think the I think I'm right in saying that the script was only found kind of after Neil's death, you know, in his sort of desk somewhere. So that's been that's been resuscitated, re-recorded, as you said, brilliant cast. Reese Shearsmith, who is another huge Neil. And another one of the League of Gentlemen. The League of Gentlemen. Another one of the League of Gentlemen. Yes, seem I mean, they're very keen on him. Uh, well, all of their, you know, a lot of their subsequent work, and certainly that comedy flows out of mm. you know, that kind of era of British of British television. Um, Caroline Katz is in it as well, and it's a really lovely little spooky story. And it's Toby Jones. Is he the lead? Toby Jones is is the lead character. Who, yeah, who is a, a telephone engineer? Again, interest in this sort of, you know, the way in which modern technology was was spreading puts in a new line into an old building. The line appears to be there seems to be some sort of interference on the line. There seems to be a kind of haunting on the line, and we sort of follow that story through and discover the the cause. It's quite a lot like it's like a sort of rehearsal in a way for one of Neil's later scripts, The Stone Tape, very influential. TV play from 1972 feels like a kind of, yeah, like a kind of first draft in a way of of that. But it's a fascinating piece, brilliantly brought back to life. If we sort of think about his legacy, this idea that there was certain, definitely a part of the genre of science fiction, as it were, on TV, that he really pioneered. It's so easy to look back on that. Partly this is to do with Hammer, I suppose, and see it in a much more kind of comical light, much more as a sort of stuff that's very easily pastiched, is kind of ridiculously over the top and melodramatic. But there was something far more serious going on, wasn't there? Absolutely. I think that's interesting. I mean, Neil worked for Hammer, you know, to some degree. It wasn't quite the only game in town, but it was a major player, wasn't it, Mm. in British cinema? Hammer made three films of Quatermass, the first two of which are really pretty dreadful, totally miscast Quatermass. The third one is much stronger, Quatermass in the Pit. And yeah, he hated those. I mean, certainly the first two, they're real sort of battlerizations of it. You know, Dick had a lot of the subtlety, a lot of the character work. The end of the Quatermass experiment in the television version is all conversation, it's dialogue that 
that ends it. You know, the movie version, "Twas ever thus, ends with the kind of explosion, really. See, I tend to think of, when I think of Hammer, I think of kind of Ingrid Pitt's heaving bosoms and the bodices and, you know, the fangs and Michael Ripper and that sort of a thing. But of course, there was a lot more going on than that. Absolutely, yes. And I don't, you know, I don't think... I'm digressing again. I'm diverting <laughs> into Hammer and Hammer Horror, of which I am a terrible, I have to say, perhaps partly due to the wonderful Talking Pictures TV. I'm, I'm, I love Friday Night Horror, bit of Hammer. It really is a, is a great sort of cheerer as you go into the weekend. But this is not what we're talking about. I'm taking us down a, a rabbit hole. No, but it is, I think, I mean, as Jonathan says, it, it, it's close. It's not a million miles away. And except it sounds as though Nigel Neal was a bit cross with with some of the productions. And it's interesting what you're saying, Jonathan, that at the beginning, they were, the audience, you find this sometimes, was a bit inclined to kind of laugh at some of the archaisms or some of the, you know, some of the kind of spooky stuff, but that they, the performance held it and the writing kept it going and that by the end of it, it was it was genuinely kind of powerful. Is that right? Yes, I think I think that's true. And it's, you know dialogue dates doesn't it in a way in which the sort of architecture of plot doesn't the plot is so strong that it you know you can see why people were gripped by it mm. Mm. well we can't see that one sadly because that was for one night only a million degrees lasting eight hours long <laughs> so you you went to that one jonathan so nobody else had to but i hope you had a beer with you jonathan i've got to say <laughs> Well, I did have a, and I went in the company of a, of a TLS editor, as it happens. I bet I know which one. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'm sure you had a lovely time. <laughs> but meanwhile, the rest of us can listen to You Must Listen. In fact, that's what it's called, isn't it? That's right. Yes. Brilliant. And thank you so much for joining us and telling us all about it. Not at all. I have to come back and talk about Hammer next time. Oh, yes. please. Good idea. Any time, a special, a one-off special. We only talk about Hammer. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Still to come on the show, Penelope Lively and her daughter Josephine on the twin joys of horticulture and literature. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. A few months ago, we were delighted to introduce a sort of offshoot to our main podcast called Turning Leaves. Our first guests were Dame Margaret Drabble and her son, the gardener Joe Swift. And in our new episode, we are thrilled to have another brilliant novelist joining us, none other than Dame Penelope Lively. We talked to her and her daughter, the musician Josephine Lively, about their shared love of horticulture and the gardens that have featured in their lives. Oh, and books too. The entire conversation will be available wherever you usually listen to the TLS podcast, but here is a scintillating extract. Since we're talking about childhood impressions of gardens, about whether either of you, both of you, read, because I have a strong memory of reading in the garden. I think that's probably why I wanted to do this podcast, basically, because it's a very good place. And when you're reading when you're a child, it's so strong and so enveloping. Do you remember reading in the garden? I I absolutely did, yes. I spent much time reading in the garden because reading on the whole was what I did. And it was curious home education. I was completely hooked on, of of all things, Andrew Lang's Tales from Troy and Greece. This is the Edwardian um, retelling of the Homeric myths. And it's it's a wonderful retelling, actually. So I was always stuck deeply into that. Part of the fascination, of course, was that I was in it somehow. I was, I'm Penelope. Oh, so, yes, so, you know, this must be about, about me in some way, you know, yeah. the solipsism of the of the eight-year-old mind. <laughs> so, but my other reading was um, Arthur Ransom, Swallows and Amazons, mm. amazingly. Those books were just coming out then, and I was riveted by them because they were so exotic. I mean, these children in this place of water and greenery and so forth I'd I'd immerse myself in this and then look up at my own humdrum world of camels and (laughs) and, and palm trees and and the hoopoo digging in the lawn (laughs) but I'm trying to remember Josephine Josephine you were an absolutely avid reader I can't remember did you read Arthur Ransom did your generation yes I did I loved it I wanted to be Nancy all the time so but also, I do remember reading a lot in the garden at Church Hanborough, but actually I used to read up a tree because there was a big, I think it was an ilex tree right by our, yes, yes. Yeah, by the front gate. And it was perfect. It had a little sort of about, must be about 10 foot up, a little place where you could sit. So I used to sit up there for hours reading. So that was where I used to read very comfortably. Goodness, do you know, I didn't even know that. I think you kept it secret. I never knew that. And the strange thing is it absolutely mirrors. I used to read 
sitting at the foot of my favorite eucalyptus tree, which had great spread out roots that made a sort of um, triangular place that you could uh, put, push yourself into. So, and I was in communion with this tree. I had a sort of animistic relationship with it. So there we go. <laughs> mm. And Joe, what were you reading in the garden? Apart from, you, were you reading your mum's work or not? No. <laughs> no, she's <says> just found <laughs> <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I yes, I did. But no, I think I do remember Swallows and Amazons very, very clearly. And I think I just used to read lots and lots and lots. If you were an absolute passionate Rosemary Sutcliffe. Yes, Rosemary Sutcliffe. I used to read a big mixture of things because um, I also rather strangely liked sort of horsey books. I think Josephine Pullen Thompson, which aren't very good. Well, I'm not sure, but they're about horses, which I wasn't interested in and didn't know anything about. So I think it was just reading about something that I didn't know anything about. We talked about this in another podcast. There's a, a genre, isn't there, of, of horsey books. I read a couple of them as well. And I used to read books about the chalet school girls who were in a boarding school in Switzerland. It was as far from my experience as it could possibly be. That must have been the pull, mustn't it? I mean, I, I'm sure this is why I passionately read Storky and Co over and over again. And these these sort of schoolboys seem to me the height of, as you say, a kind of exotic life so far beyond one's own. But it's extraordinary to think of you Penelope sitting there reading Swallows and Amazons and thinking how boring your life in this Egyptian <laughs> garden was. <laughs> I was going to try and move on to gardens in general in literature because I know that you've, you've thought about this and written about this Penelope. You make a point about whether they're they're integral to the scenery or they're a kind of atmospheric thing that you can tell whether a writer is a good gardener from, from I, how they write. And, oh I, I absolutely can yes. And I think, yes, the garden is a sort of backdrop that doesn't work very well. You, you, somehow, you somehow know that the, the writer wasn't a gardener, but you know there are a number of writers who you absolutely know must have been. Oh, goodness. Angus Wilson, there's a, uh, one of his books, The Middle Age of Mrs. Elliot, particularly, is, is brilliant on gardens because... Um, principal characters are a gay couple who run a nursery garden. This would be back in the sort of 60s, 70s, before the age of garden centres. Nothing so vulgar as a garden centre. And they run this extremely sort of recherche nursery. And all the plants and everything cited in that make me know that Angus Wilson absolutely must have gardened himself. And then I suppose almost, I mean, where I like it best is where, where the garden is relating to the subject of the book, as it were. Memorably, uh, there's the beginning of Rebecca, Daphne du Maurier, where she dreams the garden. She says, last night I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. And she dreams this garden that has got completely overgrown. The rhododendrons are 50 feet tall. Ivies all over everything. There are nettles everywhere. And it's all to do with time having passed, time having gone since when she really was at Mandalay. And then actually that links up perfectly and very oddly with a totally different writer, Virginia Woolf, who particularly amazingly, she was an absolutely hands-on gardener. Her diaries tell you about that. There are wonderful passages about weeding, about the pleasure of weeding. And she talks about the chocolate brown earth under her fingernails when she comes in. But particularly into the lighthouse, there's the bit where the character goes back 
to the sky garden, the garden that they'd gone to in childhood, and it's completely overgrown. And again, she has very precise ways in which this has happened. There were, it's a poppies had sowed themselves among the dahlias, and there were giant artichokes um, towering above the roses, and and it's all very precise. And the things that were grown there, and the fofia, red hot pocus, which were very very fashionable plant then, less so now. So they're absolutely. And I think for me, one of my favorites actually is Carol Shields. Um, Carol, she was a friend. We never saw enough of each other, usually had the Atlantic in between us. And sadly, I never had a gardening conversation with her, but I know, absolutely know from um, the Stone Diaries that she must have been a gardener because she has a character there where the central figure, Daisy, takes on um, the writing of a newspaper horticultural column. And this is absolutely infused with very precise and accurate um, gardening knowledge. It's very funny as well. And I suppose, yes, again, across the Atlantic, Willa Cather, Willa Cather was amazing on the, the prairie gardens that the, uh, the pioneer characters who were out in the prairie and trying to carve a garden out of the prairie. And, and she talks about how they planted fruit trees and, and they were planting vegetables and all around the prairie grass is sort of seething all around them. And then completely differently, there's, uh, there's um, Edith Wharton as well with rather grand um, uh, New York gardens. And Edith Wharton, so I don't think she was a hands-on gardener at all, no chocolate earth under the fingernails, but she was an amazing garden designer. She lived in France later on, and she designed and laid out two huge gardens, one in the south of France and one further up. So she absolutely was a garden connoisseur and, and knew about it. And I suppose the, the book that immediately would spring to most people's minds is The Secret Garden, is um, Francis Hodgson Burnett. Mm. No, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> You're not a fan, <laughs> are you? <laughs> I'm not. Um, I find it sentimental and it descends into whimsy. Although it'd have to be said, the garden stuff in it is all fine, that's good. Now, the, the great children's book um, that deals with the garden, of course, is, is Tom's Midnight Garden, Philippa Pierce, which is one of the great children's books of all time. And it's, it's extraordinary because it has this amazing, elegant narrative, which is about insights into the nature of time and memory. There's the dreamed garden that Tom the boy goes into every night. And then in this garden, he meets a little girl called Hattie. And at the top of the house in the same building, he's staying in a flat and the landlady of the house lives in a flat up at the top. And uh, she is Hattie, you discover at the end. And so the garden is existing in her mind. The real garden exists in her mind. And in some way, this can also become the dreamed garden that Tom has. So it's an extraordinary book. And the garden is described in absolute, absolute detail. You could, you could almost um, make a map of it. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Mm. It's a lovely idea, because actually, I think that's how we all garden, with a, some sort of dream garden, don't we? Quite often, you're not gardening with the garden that's actually in front of you, which may or may not be full of weeds <laughs> and holes and bits of stone and slugs. You're gardening with the one you've got in your mind. No, absolutely. Yes, you are. You're, you're always you know, imagining something that's going to be better or different. Yeah. Mm. What a reading list you've just given us, <laughs> I must say. And so interesting about Carol Shields. And I hadn't really thought of her as a sort of gardeny writer, but I, it makes me feel like I want to go back. And of course, it put me in mind of Larry's party, one of her you know, 
best known books, which is kind of about gardening in a way, but it's about this idea of somebody trying to find their way into their life through controlling the garden. It's about a maze maker, isn't it? A man who gets absolutely obsessed with making mazes to the sort of detriment of other parts of his life. And it seems to me in literature is often about that idea of what we can control and how we rather delude ourselves that we can control nature and put patterns on it. I'm less fond of that book than I am of uh, the Stone Diaries, but absolutely, yes, it's about it's about mazes. And over here, I do remember, I can remember her talking about the book before she was writing it. And yes, she was visiting mazes in this country. She was looking up mazes. I remember her saying to me, what mazes do you know? And I'm thinking, I, I didn't think I knew any. It's a good specific question. <laughs> Tell me about your mazes. It's interesting as well, the talking about Willa Cather and the, the prairie thing, which was what, you know, the things that people could kind of scrape out of the land at the time. And actually, in terms of fashion, a prairie garden is now very fashionable. <laughs> well, it's all photographs. It, it absolutely would be, yes, the waving prairie glasses. I don't know what kinds they were. But yes, there's that Dutch gardener whose name I can never pronounce. Yeah, Pierre Tudolf. That's it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He was absolutely into that. So, but you need huge space for that, and don't try and make one of his gardens in the in the foot of a suburban garden because you can't. You need an acreage. Josephine and I have been to see the the, the garden that he has here, and I can't remember exactly where it is. Is it the one in Somerset? In Somerset, yes. With the um, it's housed from Worth, isn't it? The art gallery that's there as well. Yes, I've seen that garden. It's wonderful. It is. It is. But it's. Uh, it's all it's waving grasses and that kind of thing. It's all about colour and texture and, and shape and, and very, very different to the way that, um, that most, most of us are able to garden. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We should say, shouldn't we hear, Joe, that you've got RHS qualifications. You know, <laughs> you know about this stuff. You're the, well, you're the gardening expert here. I mean, only of a, a fairly lowly sort. I did do the... I think it was the RHS certificate in horticulture about oh, 20, 25 years ago. And then I did a actually a garden design course at Capel Manor in mm. North London, which I really, really enjoyed. But in those days, garden design wasn't done on computer. It was all literally paper and pen and colouring in. But it was a fascinating thing to do. And um, yes, I learned a lot. I think I, I already was obsessed with gardening before I did that. And it was a very good sort of antidote to my, you know, musical career and and having small children and everything. It was really good things to do alongside. I remember seeing Piet Udolf's plans for some of that garden, because I think they have maybe something about it at House and Worth, but he does it on paper. He's got these, or it looks as though he's got these beautiful, great big, huge bits of paper and he's doing it with felt tip pens. It looks kind of possible though, of course. I mean, yes, just drawing and drawing in the colours and things, which looks stunning. And then um, it is a beautiful garden. I think also it's probably at its best about this time of year, but so early autumn, late summer, early autumn, because a lot of the grasses and herbaceous things look their best then, rudbeckias and all those sort of things. So. So will you tell us a little bit about your life in music and if that has any bearing on your your life outside, as it were, in the garden, your sort of external life? I spent most of my career being an orchestral oboist, freelancing various orchestras 
in London, symphony orchestras, chamber orchestras, and and also doing quite a bit of teaching, which is what I do now. I don't play anymore, but I do quite a bit of teaching, examining and that sort of thing. But I just think that um, the gardening just went alongside that as being something completely different. So a sort of different time scale, because with gardening, you're always thinking about the future. And I also find that I lose track of time when I'm gardening totally. And it's the only time I ever do, actually. Other, apart from that, I've always got a very good sense of what time it is or how long I've been doing something, but not with gardening. I just suddenly realised three hours has gone past. <laughs> I thought it was about 10 minutes. So I think gardening, it's so different from music. You know, music's very much in the present. And even the time is in the present, because if you're sitting playing, say, in an orchestra, you're actually literally counting time for quite a lot of time. You're counting bars rest and just watching time go in the present, whereas gardening is all about the future. And I've got a lot of um, musician friends and colleagues who are also passionate gardeners. I don't know if it's a bigger percentage than the normal, but it does seem to be a lot of musicians who love gardening, which is, is nice because that's what we talk about. I can see that the concept of time or the importance of time is is very, very different. But I suppose there is still the idea of things flowing, of a sort of freedom that you have to achieve despite the kind of, uh, you know, the strictures around you. Yes, I suppose. I mean, they're both creative. You know, even if you're sitting down playing from a score in an orchestra, which is a very specific thing you have to do you're still actually creating your own sound and your own way of playing. And when you're gardening, you're also doing that. You're creating something visual for the future. So yes, they are both creative and they both do flow. And I suppose gardening doesn't really have a beginning and an end and, and neither does music really. I feel like there was a correlation somewhere about, about the kind of Obviously, as you said, when you're actually playing the thing, you have to be very present because if you forget what bar you're in, you know, yes. <laughs> then, then there's a problem. It. Yes. Mm. I suppose it's probably more for listeners. There seems to be, it's, I was thinking about the idea of a kind of suspended present, which is a bit like gardening in the sense that when you are gardening, yeah. you know, you yeah. can, you forget what time it is. And also, I, I guess, for listeners, probably not for, uh, for you as a practitioner, but for the listeners of music you can have a sort of suspended present. And the yeah. past is involved in that, past gardens and past performances and, and the future, but probably more in gardening. Is that, is that what you think, that the gardening is more about the future than...? Yes, I think if, if you're listening to a piece of music, you can get very, very lost and absorbed in it. It takes you out of yourself, and that's what's so amazing about music. And gardening, yes, you're always hoping for the future. You plant something, you're always thinking, well next year it's going to look amazing you hope and also I, you know i'm always writing lists about things i've got to do you know <laughs> got to divide this and replant that and and that's all for the future too have time for this week. Our thanks go to Jonathan Barnes, Penelope Lively and Josephine Lively. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. 
We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.